considered. I was just turning back when I heard a noise from above, then steps. Seconds later, a figure appeared. It was a man in his early forties, lean, with black hair and an enormous bushy mustache that cascaded over his lips. His eyes were concealed by the gloom. He appraised me for a second before saying, in perfect Oxonian English, May I help you? I was told you know about Noah's Ark, I said. He considered my answer. But you were supposed to go up the second set of stairs. I agreed. Maybe you don't really want to know. He retreated as quietly as he had appeared and left me standing in the dark. This time I didn't hesitate. Upstairs the man was just settling onto a low chair covered with carpets. He gestured for me to sit next to him. He poured me a glass of tea and we exchanged niceties. He was a native of Dolubizet, a Kurd. Ten years ago he had served time in prison for his role as an insurgent. He refused to talk about the war, and when I asked his name, he gestured toward his mustache. Everyone calls me Parachute. After a while, I asked if it was possible to climb the mountain. It is forbidden, he said. Since 1991, nobody has been to the top. Is there anything to see? If you believe something, you can see. If you don't believe, you cannot see. What do you believe? We believe. When we are children, we hear things. They tell us that this is Noah's countryside. Even today, when something happens, the people say that it's the luck of Noah. Do you have the luck of Noah? I asked. We know that something is there. We find something there. I'm confused. You're saying that you know something that everyone else does not know? Yes, I know it's there. I find something there. What is it that you found? Ah, you won't tell me? Hmm. When will we hear? One day you will hear. And then you'll be famous around the world. He crossed his arms in front of his chest in a sly, self satisfied way. With prodding, Parachute explained that during a trip up the north side of the mountain in 1990 with a colleague from England, he found a piece of black wood 100 feet long. It was located at 12,000 feet. But it could have been 100 years old, I said. We tested it. And how old is it? When we find out everything, you'll know. But why wait? How much money would it take for you to bring me to it? He thought for a moment. It's not the money. It belongs to us. We found the ark. If you gave me a million dollars, I wouldn't bring it to you. If you wanted the pictures, I wouldn't give them to you. You have pictures? Yes. At this point, I decided to go back to the hotel and get Avner, who had been napping. Avner, my friend and guide, had been to the top of the mountain in 1982 on a climbing expedition. No ark sightings, but lots of pure, clean snow. For the rest of the afternoon, the three of us sat in Parachute's den. I asked Parachute what explained the Ark's appeal. The Ark is not so interesting to people, he said, but Noah has meaning, like Mohammed or Jesus. You're suggesting that Noah is as important as Jesus? If we can prove that any of these stories happened, then people will believe in God. What about you? I asked. What did you think when you found it? I was happy. I was walking along. It was a particularly warm year when suddenly I fell into this cavern covered by snow and ice, and there it was. I would like to believe your story, I said, but I find it impossible to believe that in 4,000 years you're the first person to go into this hole. Around here, there are only five guides licensed to go up the mountain, Parachute said. Two are in jail, one is ill, one won't go. That leaves me. So will you show me the pictures? He refused. What if I tell you that you're being selfish, that there are several billion people in the world who would like to know if Noah's Ark exists? He didn't react. 
What if I tell you that you could have been the savior of the Kurdish people by bringing millions of tourists to this area? He didn't move. What if I tell you that my mother is dying? A lie. And that she could die in peace if she knew that Noah's Ark was real? Parachute was silent for a moment and unfolded his arms for the first time in hours. You can tell your mother that she can be happy, that in the world there is one person who has seen Noah's Ark. The Bible is true. So if she sees your Ark, will she believe in God? She'll have to, and you will too. God is real. I have seen the proof. Outside, darkness had fallen, and I was a bit unnerved by our conversation. I suggested we take a Turkish bath to decompress. Back at the hotel, we picked up some supplies and wandered a few blocks to a run-down concrete building. Inside, we paid a small fee and were ushered into the dressing rooms. I stripped off my clothes and wrapped a faded brown dish towel around my waist. The attendant pointed through several doors, where the musty atmosphere gave way to an empty, gray, marble sanctuary filled with perfume and steam. The attendant took a bucket of hot water and splashed it over an octagonal platform. I lay down and closed my eyes. The idea of writing about the Bible had sneaked up on me. Like many of my contemporaries, after leaving home at the end of high school, I lost touch with the religious community I had known as a child. I slowly disengaged from the sticky attachment that comes from a regular cycle of readings, prayers, and services. I separated myself from the texts as well. And ultimately, I woke up one morning and realized I had no connection to the Bible. It was a book to me now, one that sat on the shelf above my TV, gathering dust on its gilded pages. The Bible was part of the past, an old way of learning, a crutch. I wanted to be part of the future. Over more than a decade of living and working abroad, I found that ideas and places became more real to me when I experienced them firsthand. It was the opportunity and curse of being alive in the age of discount airfare. But even as I traveled, I found that certain feelings from my past kept resurfacing. I sensed there was a conversation going on in the world around me that I wasn't participating in. References would pop up in books or movies that I vaguely understood, yet couldn't fully comprehend. I would read entire newspaper articles about wars I couldn't explain. At weddings and funerals, the words I heard and recited were just that, words. They had no meaning to me, no context. They were not part of me in any way. And yet I wanted them to be. Suddenly, almost overnight, as I recall, I wanted these words to have meaning again. I wanted to understand them. I went to Jerusalem. I had just completed a long project and decided to reward myself with a trip to the Middle East. On my first day in the country, I joined an old friend, Fred, who was giving a tour to some high school students. We stopped for lunch on a promenade overlooking the city. Over there, said Fred, pointing to the Dome of the Rock, is the cliff where Abraham went to sacrifice Isaac. Real or not, that piece of information hit me like a bolt of Cecil B. DeMille lightning. In the Middle East, I realized, the Bible is not some abstraction, nor some book-gathering dust. It's a living, breathing entity, unencumbered by the sterilization of time. If anything, it's an ongoing narrative. Stories that begin in the sand, get entrenched in the stone, pass down through families, and play themselves out in the lives of residents and visitors alike who traverse its lines nearly 5,000 years after they were first etched into memory. That was the Bible I wanted to know. 
and almost immediately I realized that the only way to find it was to walk along those lines myself. I went to visit Avraham Biran, the dean of biblical archaeologists and the colleague of a friend. Professor Biran listened attentively to my ramblings. What you need is someone to go with you, he said. Someone who has a sense of poetry. Somebody like Avner Gorin. Several days later in the Negev, I ran into two young Israeli guides and discussed my plan with them. What you need is someone like Avner Gorin, they said. Two days later, I telephoned Avner at his home in Jerusalem. He agreed to pick me up the following morning and arrived at dawn in a rickety blue Subaru. After greeting me warmly, he drove around the corner to a coffee shop in the fashionable German colony, where we chatted over herbal tea and croissant, instant neighbors in the global bistro. A charming, charismatic figure, Avner was a romantic, a child of the desert. For the 15 years that Israel controlled the Sinai, 1967 to 1982, he was the region's chief archaeologist and preserver of antiquities. But soon after, he abandoned the academy to become a popularizer of biblical history, one of Israel's most eloquent spokesmen on life in the ancient world. I told him about my conversation with Professor Biran. As I finished, a smile slowly crept across his face. I think it sounds exciting, he said. I sat back, relieved and exhilarated. Somehow I knew you would, I said. And by the way, would you come along? A year passed between that meeting in Jerusalem and our first foray into the field in Turkey. It was just after 5.30 on our first morning in Turkey when I joined Avner outside our hotel in Gaziantep. We had decided to begin our trip by proceeding eastward to the Tigris and a two-day trek through the Turkish highlands to Doyubayezid. We nodded our good mornings with Said, our driver, and buckled in for the ride. Since meeting him the previous day, Said's unflappable personality, along with the occasional pack of cigarettes, had helped ease our way through the numerous checkpoints where authorities prodded our passports, our luggage, our bodies, or all three. By late afternoon, we had crossed the floodplain and begun our descent to the Kurdish stronghold of Diyarbakir. One of the oldest cities on earth, Diyarbakir dates back 5,000 years and was controlled at times by the Assyrians, Persians, and Alexander the Great of Greece. The Romans built a huge wall of basalt, which in turn was rebuilt by the Byzantines, who nicknamed the place the Black. For all its past greatness, the town is chokingly grim today, a mix of concrete buildings around a dilapidated town core. With half a million residents, Diyarbakir boasts a handful of impressive mosques and a market selling carpets, spices, and Medusa-like shags of cheap belts. We dropped our bags at our hotel and headed down the river. The Tigris was narrower here than the Euphrates and murkier. Nearing six o'clock, there was almost no light on the river. The sky was the color of sludge. We sat on a boulder for a few minutes until Avner reached in his knapsack and pulled out a book with a royal blue cover. Shall we, he said. As he flipped to the page, I grabbed for my copy, the same one that had sat by my bed for years. I was nervous. This was our first chance to test one of the central ideas behind our trip. In addition to retracing the first five books of the Bible, also called the five books of Moses, we planned to read the stories in the locations where they took place. Still a newcomer to the text, I hoped this effort might deepen my appreciation of the stories by freeing them from their covers and replanting them in the ground. But the truth was, 
Neither of us knew quite what to expect. Listen to the words closely, Abner said. Listen for the sound of rivers. When God began to create the heaven and the earth, the earth was unformed and void. These words suggest a vast emptiness, Abner noted, but the next line was even more evocative, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. In Hebrew, Abner said, the word for deep is tehom, which means chaos. In Mesopotamia, chaos was represented by a sea monster, Tiamat. Tiamat is the root for tehom. We're only in the second line of Genesis, and already we have a direct link to the cult of water in Mesopotamia. We continued reading. For the next chapter and a half, the Bible tells the story of how God created the world. On the first day, God creates light and dark. On the second day, he generates an amorphous mass, an expanse in the midst of the water, and also forms the sky. On the third day, he divides this expanse into the earth and seas, and brings forth vegetation. On the fourth day, he creates the sun and the stars. On the fifth, birds and sea creatures. On the sixth, cattle and animals that creep. Also on the sixth day, God, using the plural, announces, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and creates an unnamed male and female. Finally, on the seventh day, having finished his work, God declares the day holy and rests. In many ways, this story, which appears without preamble at the beginning of Genesis, seems completely removed from time and place. But in other ways, the story is deeply rooted in a particular time, the second and third millennium, BCE, and in a particular place, Mesopotamia. Specifically, Genesis draws on the Mesopotamian obsession with water. Considering the importance of rivers, it was inevitable that water would play a vital role in ancient creation stories. Genesis also places its garden eastward in Eden and begins with the watering. There went up a mist from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. The Bible seems to place Eden near Sumer specifically, the ancient capital at the union of the Tigris and Euphrates. The Bible says the garden is located at the junction of four rivers. One of those rivers is the Euphrates, another the Tigris. Though we are only in the second chapter of Genesis and clearly in the realm of allegory, Already the Bible is rooting itself firmly in the ground, in actual places, in geography. The story seems to be reaching out, saying, these are not mere tales. This is not recreation. These words are as indispensable to you as the landscape, the soil, even water itself. Stories, like rivers, give life. The next morning we headed out early for the drive to Doyubayazit. Quickly the terrain began to change. The congestion of Diyarbakir faded.